Well, I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. We will be continuing on in our expositional study of this book through verses 16 through 21. That is where our scripture reading will come from. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 16 through 21. Here in this latter half of this fourth letter that was written to Corinth, the first and third letter having been lost, but the fourth letter being entitled 2 Corinthians, Paul has a turning point and here he is addressing the subject of the false teachers who had come into Corinth to undermine his ministry and he is in the process of defending his integrity, his ministry, and who he is. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. The Word of God reads, Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me, even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you on the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word. For you have spoken to us through your word, and we pray, God, that you would cause us, O Father... To know what it is to tremble before your word. We pray, God, that you would instill with us a reverence for you. Holy fear of who you are. That we might know you, the power of your word. We pray, God, that you would illumine our minds, fill us with your spirit, and grant to us a spirit of understanding. Convict our hearts. Help us, O Father, to be humble before your throne of grace. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Last year I was at the grocery store, I remember, and I was looking at the cereal aisle. And here we were, I was shopping for some cereal. I don't eat cereal all the time, but there was a box of Cocoa Krispies. And I like Cocoa Krispies because it turns the milk chocolatey. And on the front of the box it said, boost your immunity. So I bought a box of Cocoa Krispies. And I was eating Cocoa Krispies, and on the evening news, within a week of that time, I watched as Kellogg settled a class action lawsuit for false advertising. (laughs) Now, I don't think that it really boosted my immunity any. In fact, you know, they say it's something like 40% sugar, and it's more of a dessert than anything. But on that box, there's plenty of things that are true. The packaging, I cannot pronounce all of the words that are on the ingredients. And one major claim, though, of all of that was not true. False teaching is the same way. There's going to be a lot that is true. 
a lot of good things. A lot of things that are right. But then there will be something that is wrong. There will be some things that are wrong. There will be many things sometimes. And yet there will be also many undiscerning people. As we have been sharing with you in the past, the problem of not being discerning. And they will take in whatever it is that is said. Some Christians are so used to simple teaching teaching that is never very much in depth of the Word of God and rarely, if ever, digging deep into the Word of God, simply causing them to not know and be undiscerning. Hebrews 5.14 reminds us that solid food, solid food or the meat of the Word is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Discernment comes from solid Teaching, and it comes from obedience, the practice of it. If one doesn't have solid, in-depth teaching, and if one doesn't practice it, then one's senses aren't trained to discern between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And the Corinthians obviously had a problem with that. They had a problem with that. And the problem was that they had accepted all of these false teachers who had come into the church who had infiltrated the church, who began to undermine the ministry of Paul, who began to attack his credibility, and Paul addresses in this letter the problem that they had. And perhaps the longest portion of all of Paul's letters which address the subject of his own ministry in defense of it, in defending his ministry. And by way of review, as you've been through with me in the book of Second Corinthians, we come to the chapter, chapter 10 and onward, he really turns in the defense of his ministry. He changes in the tone in which he writes and he addresses these false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And the last time we looked at this particular section in chapter 11, he expressed to the Corinthians his genuine desire his genuine desire as an apostle. And he speaks to the church and his genuine desire, he couches it in the picture of a father whose responsibility it was to protect the purity of his daughter before she was married so that he could present to her husband... So that he could present her to her future husband as a pure virgin. And he characterizes his desire for the church in that way. That he would present to Jesus Christ a pure church. A church that had been doctrinally sound and was walking in the truth. He, he, he says to them that he didn't come by way of eloquence. He didn't come by way of some erudite speaker. He didn't come by way of somebody who had some mystery that had come to him in some vision. No, he came to them in truth, speaking what was true. He wasn't coming to them asking for money, as was his practice in early churches, you know. His, when he first planted a church... He supported himself, or he was supported by churches who had been already established, but he didn't ask them for it. He would work with his own hands so that it might not be a hindrance to his testimony. He came to them without greed, he says right there in the beginning of chapter 11. He came to them in love, a heart of love. And in faithfulness he would begin, and he would continue faithfully to preach the message of the gospel and what was true to them. And the warning, as we had seen in the prior context, was don't 
be gullible. Don't be taken by these false teachers. There will be a lot that will be true, but some things will be outright false. Some teaching, some new insight, some new trend, some new fad, some new book, some new movement or whatever will always come on the scene. Don't be hooked in by these things. And then he comes to the passage in which we see today. And that is that of how to answer a fool. Answering a fool. And he couches himself in the subject of perhaps he will speak as a foolish person was. And facetiously he begins because this is a section on really a type of foolish boasting that he does. And he says this. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do receive me even as foolish, I may boast a little. The foolishness of these false teachers was their pride. It was their pride. They were arrogant. They were boastful. They put down Paul in order to lift themselves up. They attacked his integrity. They compared themselves to some standard that they had themselves set up. They had letters of commendation and they were foolishly boasting, bragging about who they were. Now, when we come to the subject of uh, what a fool is, when the Bible talks about what a fool is, it talks about them in different senses. Not all fools are the same. The Bible warns us about not being a fool not doing foolish things and no one wants to be called a fool but the Bible talks about people who are fools in different ways in the New Testament we find that there were nine times that fools are mentioned three different words sometimes meaning foolish or stupid sometimes meaning a person who is made foolish sometimes a person who is made ignorant but when you think about what a fool is many times we think about what we've read in the Old Testament Ninety-nine times it is mentioned in the Old Testament. And some 62 times in the book of Proverbs alone. And 21 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's, a few, it's important to know some of these distinctions. And so I'd like to take a little excursus. When we especially look at the book of Proverbs where the idea of a fool is mentioned often. The first type of fool, we'll look at a few of them. Again, not all of them, but the first type of fool that is mentioned in the book of Proverbs is one who is an ignorant fool. The Hebrew word petty, sometimes, oftentimes translated as the word simple. Simple, meaning naive or susceptible, meaning a person who is gullible. They, they just don't know. They're not educated. They don't know any better. They're easily taken, easily duped. And many times you have probably experienced that type of foolishness as well. I remember sharing with you perhaps a few years ago, a number of years ago, about a winter when my electricity went out. It was a terrible winter. The electricity had gone out and the temperature in my home uh, dipped down to about 43 or somewhere around there, the lower 40s. That's just, uh, you know, uh, just real close to what your refrigerator might be, a little bit warmer. And so I ended up not staying there and, and because I, it was just really too cold. And the only thing that worked in my home really was the alarm system. And the alarm system was on this battery backup. But in a few days, of course, that was drained as well. And when the power came back on, it was after a week, it's like a week or ten days, the power came back on 
and this battery backup system just came back on, but it would just beep incessantly. It would just be beeping for some unknown reason. And I only lived in the house for, I don't know, a couple of years or whatnot, and I didn't even use the alarm system. But I thought I knew what the code was because the previous owner at some time told me. So I thought, I've got to turn this thing off. And I began to punch the buttons, you know, on the code pad. And lo and behold, I must have punched in the right buttons because it armed the entire house, which I'd never armed before. So I had alarmed the whole house, and now I was inside, and that wouldn't be so bad had I not needed to go to Bible study in an hour. So, well, what did I do? I thought to myself, well, I've got to maybe get out of here because they let you have like, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute so you can still get out. So I must have taken too much time because when I opened the door, the alarm went off and I had these horns that would just be blaring and just consoled. It was just loud. I'd never heard anybody on my whole street ever have their alarm go off. Nice, quiet neighborhood, you know, families and all of that. And that just thing went off and on. And I thought to myself, well, you know, it'll go off a few minutes, you know. A few minutes went by and I was getting more sweaty because it just would not go off. And I didn't know what to do. And so I thought to myself, I punched the buttons. I tried to punch all sorts of buttons to get this whole neighborhood alarm system, which was now, I'm sure everybody knew, off. And I thought to myself, okay, what I'll do. And I was desperate and sweating and I had to leave. And so I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll cut the wires to the speaker. So I found out where the alarm was in my closet. And I thought, oh, I've got to get the pliers. I got the pliers and I, or the thing. And I thought, I'll cut the wires. So I cut the wires. And it still went on, and I realized I had cut the doorbell wires. So now my doorbell wouldn't work, and now it's still going on. And I didn't know what to do. It was continuing on, and it was giving me a headache. And I thought to myself, I will, I know where it's coming out. I will smash the thing. I didn't own a sledgehammer, but I did own an axe. So I took my axe, and I took the axe to that thing, and bam, a few times, and that thing. But I didn't realize... That wasn't the only horn I had in the house. I had another siren that was continuing to go on. And I realized this and I went out and I tried to find out where it was coming from. And I realized it was mounted on a steel box outside of my house, blaring to the whole neighborhood. So then I had to get my ladder and there I was. This thing was going on with my axe and I was just smashing this thing on the outside of my house trying to get it done. And you can imagine my neighbors. What a fool. He doesn't know how to turn off his own alarm. What is his problem? That is the type of fool that this speaks of. The fool that doesn't know any better. The fool that is ignorant. The fool that is undiscerning. That is just not educated about how to turn off their alarm. So, I've obviously learned. I haven't replaced it ever since. The hole is still there. I managed to knock the thing off. But that is the first type of fool that Proverbs describes. The fool that is ignorant and uneducated about what they need to do. And the way to approach that fool is to educate them. Is to correct them. And they're open to that. They, they, they need to, 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 to know how are they going to correct what their life is leading to. That is the first type of fool. But then there is another fool on the other side of the spectrum. It is characterized by the Hebrew word a will, and it is a type of fool that is frequently used. 
used to denote somebody who becomes angry, who is quarrelsome, who is associated with sin, unrestrained anger. It's associated, I think, with the word also Nabal. As you know, in the, in the Old Testament, there was the story of Nabal and his wise wife, Abigail. Nabal was going to be, um, he was, his, his land was protected by David. And David asked for some supplies and food for his men. Nabal said no. And David was going to take an exact vengeance upon him when his wife Abigail, she intervenes. She calls him this, new, this ill-natured fellow. His, his name itself means fool. This is the type of person who is a wicked fool, a type of person who is morally corrupt, a person who is unreasonable, who says in Psalms 14.1, there is no God. This is the type of fool that is the one who will not listen to you, is hard-hearted and is stone cold to the truth of the word of God. The most common type of the word fool found in the Bible, though, is that of the word kessel, meaning one who is stupid or sluggish, one who is self-confident, one who is, he hates instruction, is indolent or engages in merriment, you know, sort of the one who, who, who is wanton in, in their lifestyle, who engages in slander. And this is perhaps the type of fool that Paul addresses here. This type of fool who it says in Proverbs 26.5, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. These fools are prideful. These fools think highly of themselves. And so did the fools in 2 Corinthians. They spoke well of themselves. And Paul said facetiously, don't categorize me with these types of fools. But if you do, bear with me. Bear with me. He would boast then. He would boast. Bear with me as I boast a little, he says. Hang there with me. Because you know what? You put up with all of these things. And then he has a little caveat in verse 17. He has a little caveat. He says, what I'm saying, I'm not saying as a Lord would. But as in foolishness, for in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. In other words, he's not saying, this is not inspired. He's not saying, well, this part isn't part of the Bible, as some commentators would say. He's saying, you know what? The Lord wouldn't talk like this because the Lord wouldn't need to talk like this. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying things as the Lord would say them, but because he himself is a person who needs to defend his own integrity, he is going to boast a little. But what's important is that in his boasting, his motive wasn't to boast for self-aggrandizement. His boasting and his bragging wasn't to pat himself on the back, to put others down to make himself look good. His boasting wasn't to uh, lift himself up or to win him friends and followers to polish his own ego. His boasting was for their good. So they wouldn't be led astray. He didn't want them to be deceived. His boasting was for their good and for God's glory. You know, in the news, there have been a lot more publicity regarding children. Children who have perhaps been abducted and have been discovered many years later. They've been kidnapped, perhaps brainwashed by their captors over a long period of time. 
And sometimes when you have a very impressionable child who's been kidnapped for a long time, they begin to see the world differently. They begin to see the world in light of what their captors have, have told them. They, they're deceived into thinking and thinking in ways that are different. They begin to relate to their captors or identify with them. Like some kidnap victims come kidnap victims. They begin to affiliate themselves to the very people who have abducted them. And so you can imagine what it would be like. You can imagine what it would be like for a parent once this, once this child is found. Once this child is found and they've been deceived for a long time. And the parent who comes into their And for the first time, after a number of years, the parent begins to try to connect, bringing pictures in, telling them of the things that they used to do together, telling them of the things that they would do to look for them, to search for them, the things that you used to do for them as a small child and when they were younger. And the parent is there not because they're trying to brag about themselves, not because they're trying to be boastful and show who they are. They're trying to, what, reconnect with their child and to reestablish the legitimacy and the authenticity of who they are as the child's parent. For the child's welfare, for the child's good, to share with them that they've been deceived. And you know what? They're not doing it out of pride, but doing it because they love that child and they want that child back into the family. And in the same sense, this is what Paul is doing. The credibility of his integrity had been undermined. The credibility of his apostolic authority had been attacked and he wanted to reestablish that so that the church would not be led away by these teachers who are promoting themselves. And he points out the foolishness of these false teachers. Why? So that they might be exposed. Just as Ephesians 5.11 says, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. So when dealing with foolish teachers, they weren't to be the ignorant type. They weren't to be those who just sucked in everything. But they were going to be rebuked as these Teachers were stubborn, greedy, abusive. And if he didn't, the results didn't go well, he knew that they would be led away by these abusive teachers. For they had an ungodly, the Corinthians did, an ungodly toleration. Verse 19. He says to them facetiously, sarcastically, for you, oh, you being so wise, you tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerated, if anyone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, exalts you, anyone hits you on the face, we're weak by that standard. They've been so deceived that they led them to be abused by their new leaders. The pride of the Corinthians had blinded them. In fact, Paul uses this kind of language in the past, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, you've already been filled. You've already become rich. You've already become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings that we might reign with you. That's what he says. We're fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor, he says to them facetiously, that he might drive home the point. The point was what? They were wrong to be what? Even glad. They were glad to make these people 
their leaders. They tolerated them, he says. Oh, you tolerate them gladly. And he lists a number of things. He says, you become enslaved by them. You're enslaved by these folks. It's the same Greek word that's used of the Judaizers who went into Galatia. Remember when he writes the letter to the Galatians? He writes to them. And some letters, you know, he's very encouraging. You know? Some letters he's very encouraging. The book of... Letter to the Thessalonian church, letter to the Philippian church. It's very encouraging, you know, speaks of their joy, how grateful he is. When he writes to the Galatians, it comes across very strongly because they had left for another gospel. The Judaizers had come in and the Judaizers were those who tried to impose the Old Testament legalistic system upon the new Christians. And they had been swayed into a works type of a righteousness. And he tells them, you know what? You've been enslaved too in the same idea. You have tolerated anyone who enslaves you. Do you know that's a characteristic of a, of a cult or a church that is aberrant? Highly oppressive, controlling church. Theologically, one can be enslaved too. By a works righteousness, a system of salvation that is not right. Second area in which they tolerated was being devoured. They were being devoured. This word is used in Mark 12:40 about widows who had been devoured by false teachers who had come in. Because you see, in Jesus' day, it was very nice, very considered, very a godly thing to uh, let, let let somebody who is a traveling itinerant teacher to stay in your home. And to eat your food, to show them hospitality for the work they were doing. And there were some who would take advantage, especially of widows. Take their money and take their hospitality and take whatever they had. They were being devoured. And the same idea here for the Corinthian church. Thirdly, they took advantage of them. Took advantage of them. This word is used in Luke 5.5. 5. I took you in by deceit. Picture is a fish caught in a net. They were being taken advantage of. They were milked for whatever they had to offer. Whether it was money or power or being led around. It was the false teachers who were taking advantage of them. And then, fourthly, they were leaders who were exalting themselves. And their arrogance, they exalted and lorded over. And this is what the, they were used to. You know that? Back in those days, they were used to leaders. As Jesus said, you're used to these Gentile leaders who lord over you. It was seen, not as a servant leadership type that was being promoted. Back then, it was seen like a strong leader would be like Caesar, like Rome, like whoever else. The leaders of the Gentiles would lord it over them. And so were these false teachers. They were lording it over the people, even metaphorically or possibly physically hitting them in the face. Insulting them, humiliating them, and they were putting up with it gladly, gladly. See, tolerance isn't always a good quality, especially to ungodliness. In our day and age, tolerance is held up as a virtue. Held up as a virtue. And there's a change in definition as well in relationship to what is accepted and rejected. This whole idea of tolerance. It used to be historically that people would uh, reject ideas, but be tolerant and accepting of people. Now in our postmodern era, people are accepting of ideas, but rejecting people who are intolerant. That's a flawed shortcoming of 
those who are moral relativists. That is simply that. They may claim to accept all beliefs. They may claim to be tolerant of all ways, quote-unquote, to God. They accept everything and anyone except those who are intolerant, except those who are exclusive, except those who will call themselves by the name of Christ as one and only way to God. They will, in fact, be the ones who are the intolerant. They will call those who adhere to one way as haters, those who take a stand for what is right. The Corinthians were so accepting, so accepting that they were suffering spiritual abuse, spiritual abuse from these false leaders. And that happens in cults and false religions around the world. In a story told to Jan Brown entitled, I Grew Up in a Polygamous Family, there's an account written of Kathy. She was one of 13 children raised by one father and three mothers in a polygamous community in Utah. As part of the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a sect that split from the church, of Jesus Christ in the Latter-day Saints in 1890s, otherwise known as the Mormons. She was always burdened by the unrealistic expectations of the cult. She wrote, quote, We were constantly told to keep sweet and that perfect obedience produces perfect faith. It was impossible to keep the duty of complete obedience to the prophet That prophet's name was Leroy Johnson. We called him Uncle Roy, said Kathy. He was a feeble old man who prophesied that he would never die and that he would become young again and be lifted up to heaven. And if I kept sweet, I'd be taken with him. I look forward to that glorious day with hope and fear. Well, he passed away at the age of 93 and was succeeded by a new prophet. And that shattered her faith in Mormonism. And so she ran away and met a man named Matt. And the two were married and moved to California. Later on, she split up with Matt and she met Brian, who was a Christian. And Kathy describes what happens next. And she says this. We began attending church and Brian and I spent more time together. He had a purpose to his life, a steadiness I wanted. When I told him about my past, he talked about how Mormonism differed from the truth of the Bible. We began praying together. God seemed more real and different than I'd ever expected. One day, Brian's mother talked about a baptism. I asked many questions. What did a person need to do to be baptized? Did he say a vow or go through a ceremony? How much did it cost? She assured me that baptism was free. That it was an outward statement of an inward commitment to Christ. I admitted I'd never... I wasn't sure I'd made that commitment. How did I get this faith? Do you have to keep sweet and be perfectly obedient? She said that good deeds don't save us. The Bible teaches that trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross saves us. I was amazed at the simplicity of the gospel message I cried. As I realized I could come to Christ just as I was. He didn't require perfection. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. 
After counseling sessions with the pastor to make sure I'd fully understood, I was baptized. By God's grace, I am now a woman of faith. Unquote. You see, it is only by grace that we have freedom. True freedom. True freedom from the abuses of those who would be totalitarian in their authority. Freedom from the bondage of man-made religion. Freedom from the bondage of legalism. Or freedom from the bondage of a foolish and boastful or arrogant teachers. To be discerning is what God calls us to. Not to be foolish. To rebuke those who need correction. And to be discerning people. There's nothing wrong with intolerance when it comes to that which is false. Not to fall into our day and age. Which exalts tolerance. And says that is the right way. But to know Jesus is the only way. Because only through Christ do we have the grace that allows us the freedom to live and do which is pleasing to God forever and to have a relationship with Him. Let's close together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace abounds far beyond what we deserve. We give you thanks, O God, for saving us from our sin. And God, may we live a life of wisdom that we might understand what it is to do your will. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.